It's April 18, 1998. 21,000 people descend upon 1901 West Madison Streets in Chicago, Illinois. They'll fill the National Basketball Association's largest arena that was built to accommodate the NBA's biggest attraction, Michael Jeffrey Jordan. It's the last game of Jordan's Bulls regular season. They're playing the New York Knicks. Now, the Bulls at this point had already clinched the best record among the teams in their conference. Jordan has already secured his 10th scoring title. That means he's averaged the most points per game among all the NBA's players. And if that weren't enough, the Jordan-led Bulls had already won five NBA championships to that point. And Jordan and the rest of the 1998 <coughs> Chicago Bulls recognized that this was likely the final year they would all play together. So if there was ever a game when a player would be justified to rest, it was this one. We might actually think it would be wise for Michael Jordan not to play in order so he'd have, he avoids injury and prepares for their final playoff run. But do you think on April 18th, 1998, that Jordan joined the 21,000 people as a spectator? Or do you think he played in the game? He played in the game. Not only did Jordan play, he had one of his best games of his the entire season. He scored 44 points in a game that many would say didn't matter. And why did he do it? Well, Jordan had plenty of motives for why he played basketball, some of them admirable, some of them not. But one of his motives has always stuck with me. Jordan played his best for the sake of who was watching. The 21,000 people who came to watch him play on April 18th, they knew who he was. They saw him play on TV. A lot of them probably even wore his shoes and wore his jersey. But Jordan knew that a lot of them never saw a game in person. And he wanted to make every single game special for the sake of those people. So Michael Jordan really played each game like it was his last because he knew who he was playing for. Friends, God wants his people to approach each day a lot like how Michael Jordan approached each basketball game. You see, all of life is like a stage or an arena. And we live before the presence of more than just fans. We live before the presence of God. And God presses this point to his people at this stage in their journey in the book of Leviticus. At this stage, God has already delivered his people. He's already made them his own. He already dwells with them and has made a way for them to approach him. But now, God is shaping his people for life in the promised land where he's leading them. And when they get there, his presence with them should inform every part of their lives. And so if we're to sum up Leviticus 21 to 25 in one statement, we can encapsulate it like this. To live well before God's presence means to treat all of life as from the Lord and for the Lord. To live well in God's presence means to treat all of life as from the Lord and for the Lord. Now, a little review. Last week we saw how God shapes his people so that they are devoted to him, different from the world, and display his character. This week, God hones in on certain facets of his people's lives. So to live well before his presence, they will need holy leaders. They will need to treat their time as holy, and they will need to treat their land as holy. That's the roadmap for, uh, for ahead of us in our time together. So let's jump in with Leviticus chapter 21, the 
who gets on page 99, you're looking at a Bible provided. Um, and I really encourage you to turn there and follow along. In fact, if I was sitting in your shoes, was not looking at the Bible and hearing me preach, I would get lost really easily. So it's just for you. Please turn in your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 21. And we'll just take an overview at how God calls his people to have holy leaders. He'll do that in chapters 21 and chapters 22. Now these leaders are the priests. Now before these chapters, God's given instructions for all of his people generally. And now in these chapters, God narrows his focus to address priests specifically. Chapter 21 addresses the priest's ritual cleanness and the priest's moral cleanness. In these chapters, God's going to hold his priests, the leaders of his people, to higher standards than the rest of his people. And he's even going to hold the high priest to a higher standard than the rest of the priests. It's because the high priest went further into God's presence. And so God shows his higher standards for the leaders of his people in their ritual cleanness. And he shows that through a case study. A case study about how his leaders handled death. So chapters, chapter 21, verses 1 to 3, chapter 21, verse 11. They tell the priest, God tells the priest there that they can't be going around touching dead bodies all the time. I know, I don't know why, you might think, why would this be tempting for them? Well, there's a lot, the presence of death was a lot more prominent back then than it is now. But if the priests went around touching dead bodies all the time, they would be unclean all the time. And if they were unclean all the time, then they couldn't do their jobs. You see, the priests were the ones who approached God's presence in the tabernacle. Their uncleanness would defile God's holy and clean dwelling place. Now just remember that what is clean and unclean has deeper meaning and symbolism. So in this case, when the priests approach God, the fountain of life, God doesn't want them to have any stain of death on them. So he holds them to higher standards for ritual cleanness. And it's not just about how they handle dead bodies, it's also about how they respond to death in general. So take a look at chapter 21, verse 5. Chapter 21, verse 5 says they aren't to make bald patches on their heads, nor to shave off the edges of their beards, nor make any cuts on their bodies. You flip down to verse 10, it's a higher standard for the high priest. Verse 10 says the high priest couldn't let the hair of his head hang loose or tear his clothes. So even in how they respond to death, these priests are to be holy. Now, holy is a word we use all the time. To be holy, maybe one way to put it is just to show that you belong to the Lord. So, in verse 5, these bald patches, shaving edges on their beards, these cuts, you might think that they're random, but they're not. These are ways that the Canaanites around them would mourn death. And for the high priest and his clothes and his hair, well, the high priest's hair, it rested upon his head that was anointed for God's service. The high priest's clothes were specially made for God's service. So here for the priests and for the high priests, their response to death, you think about it, it could be an opportunity for them to forget who they are, to forget their job, to forget their identity. This could be a time when they would be especially vulnerable to sin and to lead people astray. So all the reason why it is an important time to remember that they are holy. They belong to the Lord and they live for the Lord. A higher standard for ritual. 
cleanness. But not just their ritual cleanness. God wants more than just that. He wants the priest's moral cleanness. He wants them to be more than just squeaky clean on the outside. He wants them to be clean on the inside, also at a level of their hearts. And so this time, God addresses the priest's higher standards for moral cleanness through another case study. It's through their wives and through their families. So chapter 21, verse 7, we see that God wants them to marry a woman of good character. Verse 14, again, God has a higher standard for the high priest. Not only must he marry a woman of good character, she must also be a virgin. This would protect the line of the high priest by ensuring that his children are his own. Higher standards for the priest, the ritual cleanness, the moral cleanness. We continue with an overview of 21 and 22. Chapter 21 closes again with standards for the priest's ritual cleanness. It says that no priest that has a blemish or a deformity can approach God's presence in the tabernacle. Now, this might sound harsh, but just to be clear, this isn't because God doesn't love that priest. This isn't because that man has even committed a certain sin that has led to that deformity or that blemish. This is because all blemishes and deformities are effects of sin generally. And God's presence in the tabernacle is to be like a restored Eden how everything once was at the beginning. God's presence in the tabernacle should be a place where the effects of sin aren't present. So on into chapter 22, God continues his higher standards for priests. And he talks about what might be an overlooked topic for priests. He talks about the food that they eat. Even the food that they eat is to be holy. It's from the Lord and it's for the Lord's service. They shouldn't treat the food casually. They shouldn't treat it abusively. They were to be clean when they ate it. It was reserved only for those who belonged to the priest's household. So this means that Aaron wasn't to become a Michael Corleone, mafia boss-like figure. The holy bread was not to become some black market commodity that could be bought and sold at a high price. No, it's not to be abused. It's from the Lord and for the Lord. They should treat it as such. Chapter 22, so an overview still, it closes with a discussion of the animals that the priests sacrificed. So chapter 22, verse 19, says that the animals are to be male and without blemish. Again, this is more than just because God deserves their best, which he does, but also that the animals that come into God's presence are to be like the priests that come into God's presence. They're to have no outward signs of the effects of sin. And chapter 22 closes uh, with a final charge to Aaron and to all the rest of the priests. In verses 31 to 33, we'll follow along as I read. So you shall keep my commandments and do them. I am the Lord, and you shall not profane my holy name, that I may be sanctified among the people of Israel. I am the Lord who sanctifies you, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord. This final charge reminds me of one of the conditioning exercises we had to do in high school baseball. I don't know if anybody's done these before. They're called Indian runs. Uh, so Indian runs are where everybody runs in a single file line around a track. And the person at the end of the line has to sprint all the way past all the runners to the front of the line. And the last person has to do that continually until the coach says stop. Now, the most important person in the Indian run is the guy at the front of the line. Now, 
He can take it easy on everybody and go nice and slow so that the last person has an easier time. But if that happens, then the coach is likely to notice and he's going to give you a hard time. And then the machine's not going to get stronger anyway. At the same time, if the guy at the front of the line goes too fast, well, then no one's going to be able to catch up and you'll never finish the Indian. The priests in Leviticus 21 and 22, they are like the guys at the front of the line. They set the pace. Even here in this final charge, you can hear God saying, how you treat God, how you, how you treat me, is how the rest of the people are going to treat you. They set the pace. The priests play a key role in Israel's life before God's presence. They represent God to the people. And how well they do that will help the people represent God to the nations around them. Be a kingdom of priests. It makes me think of, and this charge to the priest makes me think of uh, community group from this past Wednesday night, uh, where we shared, where a lot of people shared where they feel they need growth in this season of their lives. And all of your pastors shared. Uh, Randall said he feels a need to grow in temperance and patience. Uh, Pastor Bill said that he feels a need to grow in a consistent passion for the Lord. I said I need to grow in graciously responding and being, and being patient as well. And so it just makes me think of here in Leviticus 21 and 22, by God's grace, your pastors want to set the pace. It's our prayer in that as you look at us, your pastors, you can see what it looks like to grow. And it would fuel your own growth. It's how Paul instructs his protege, Timothy. For the people he pastors, he says, everybody should be able to observe how you grow. That's our prayer here as well. The priests play a key role in their life before God's presence. They set the pace. They represent God to the people, but they also represent the people to God. They're the ones who go into God's presence on their behalf. So that's a weighty responsibility. So the people need holy priests. And friends, that need hasn't gone away. You and I need a holy priest. Even as we hold up the importance of pastors, pastors are effective only insofar as they serve like Jesus, point to Jesus, and pastor in the power of Jesus. Because if we are to enter into God's presence, not just in the tabernacle, but in heaven itself, we need a truly holy priest. A priest who has no need to sacrifice for his own sin because he doesn't have any. And yet a priest who sacrificed himself so that we could be brought into God's presence. That priest is none other than Jesus Christ himself. And that priest now lives forever to save those who draw near to him. So my friend, ask your questions today, but if you don't trust in Jesus, the call to you today is to turn away from your sin and to trust in Christ alone. So the people, to live well before God's presence and all of life, they need holy leaders. But secondly, they need to treat their time as holy. And treating their time as holy made me think of, of, of our American calendar. The holidays we celebrate in America are pretty random. There's no cohesion to them. They don't really stick together. They don't tell a story. I mean, look at the holidays that we have. There's, there's Flag Day, which is on our calendars. It's a thing I don't really know what we're supposed to do on Flag Day. We just had in the beginning of February, uh, Groundhog Day. Maybe that's your favorite. I don't know. I guess it can be fun if you're up that early. But I have no idea why we celebrate Groundhog Day. And our holidays in America are so random that people still make up more holidays. 
There's everybody's favorite American holiday, and that's National Talk Like a Pirate Day. Oh, and that is a real thing. That's <laughs> Dean is waving his hand. <laughs> <laughs> the calendar for God's people is not so random as like us Americans tend to fool. You go into chapter 23, and God is carefully crafting a rhythm of life for his people so that they always live before his presence. A rhythm of life so that they always live before his presence. He's doing this so that they will always treat their days and their weeks and their months as holy, so that they treat all of the time that they have like it really comes from the Lord and should be used for the Lord. So God reminds them of this principle at the beginning of chapter 23. This chapter, as we go on, it will discuss the feasts that the Israelites were to celebrate throughout the year. But all of these feasts start with the weekly Sabbath. They build upon that foundation. Exodus chapter 31, verse 17, calls the Sabbath a sign that God created the universe in six days and then rested on the seventh. But more than that, it calls the Sabbath a sign of God's relationship with his people, a sign of his covenant. The Sabbath was a weekly reminder to his people that they belong to the Lord. So this principle of the Sabbath informs all of their other feasts. We see it just in the prominence of the number seven throughout chapter 23 and 25. So when you include the weekly Sabbath, chapter 23 talks about seven total feasts that happen throughout the year. Besides the weekly Sabbath, there are seven special days of rest throughout the year. The majority of the feasts throughout the year occurred in the seventh month. We'll see in chapter 25, every seventh year is a Sabbath year. Every seventh Sabbath year is a super Sabbath year. <laughs> so you see this. God is crafting an entire rhythm of life that reminds them of their relationship with him. It should remind them of who he is and what he has done for them. So let's just take an overview of this rhythm of life, an overview of chapter 23, looking at these feasts. Chapter 23 opens first to talk about the spring feasts. There are three of these. So around March or April, uh, first feast is Passover. Uh, Passover is when we celebrate Easter every year. Uh, it's also called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This, you probably know, it commemorates and reenacts when God delivered his people from the land of Egypt. When God passed over the judgment of the firstborn in Egypt, when he saw the blood of the lamb that was shed on the doorposts in their place. It was during this time also when God instructed his people to make unleavened bread because they didn't have time to wait for bread to rise before they went out of Egypt. Going on in another spring feast, verses 9 to 14, describe the spring feast of the first fruits. This is a new feast they were to celebrate because they were coming to a new land. A new land that wasn't their own, that they didn't earn, but that God gave to them. And that God didn't belong to God. So they acknowledge this truth by just dedicating the first fruit of their harvest to the Lord, the giver of every good and perfect gift. The last spring feast is the Feast of Weeks. You might know it by its Greek name of Pentecost. This happened 50 days or seven weeks after the Feast of First Fruits. It marked the end of the grain harvest. So if First Fruits acknowledges that all the crops this year are for the Lord, the Feast of Weeks acknowledges that all the crops we got this year were because of the Lord, that they were from Him. So it's fitting that in chapter 23, verses 21 to 22, 
that as God gave to them, he tells them, you are to give to others. Now the fall feasts begin in verse 23 of chapter 23. The fall feasts begin in the seventh month from the first day of that month with the Feast of Trumpets. Today it's known as Rosh Hashanah. It's the New Year's Day. This would be around September or October. Remember that they're on the lunar calendar, unlike ours. So the Feast of Trumpets marked the end of the agricultural year and marked the beginning of a new one. It called for people to prepare for the most important month of the year, the seventh month, including a feast that would happen ten days later after this one, the Day of Atonement. Now you might remember chapter 16 covered the Day of Atonement in detail. It's described in chapter 23 in verses 26 to 32. It's the day when the tabernacle, God's dwelling place, is cleansed from the sin of the people that has defiled it throughout the year. It's also the day when all of God's people are cleansed. So there are two goats that do this. One goat is cast out of God's presence, carries his people's sins away. Another goat is killed in their place so that they can go into God's presence with the priest representing them. The last feast in the fall, chapter 23, is the Feast of Booths. You see that in chapter 23, verses 33 to 34. The Feast of Booths also happens in the seventh month. Commemorates and reenacts when God's people lived in booths or tents when they were dwelling in the wilderness. Now, during this feast, the people would take branches, they build tents, and they go camping for a week. Now, this is the fun feast, but it wasn't just for a desire to get in the elements or to get in the great outdoors. This feast was to pass down to every generation, and God has always faithfully watched over us and provided for us. This feast was to, this feast was to pass down to every generation. At one time, we didn't have a place to settle and to call home, but now we do, and that's because of the Lord. So at the Feast of Booths, when the Israelites would defy themselves from some of the privileges of daily life, they would appreciate all the more what God had done for them. Now, as chapter 23 ends, chapter 24 begins. We're still in this rhythm of life that God is crafting for his people. And remember that chapter 23 began with instructions about the Sabbath. And we see another bracket about the Sabbath at the beginning of chapter 24, verses 1 to 9. In chapter 24, 1 to 9, he, God bringing up the Sabbath again, it's like God's telling them, guys, don't be a priester. You know what a priester is? <coughs> it's, the, it's the people who go to church only on Christmas and Easter. That's right. <laughs> we just talked about all these feasts. Don't live your relationship with me only on these special days. You, your relationship with me applies to every day, every week. Chapter 24, 1-9 to nine is a reminder of that. They're to live in God's presence every day, especially every Sabbath. Verses 1-9 and nine of chapter 24 are a beautiful picture of this. They tell us about attending to items in the tabernacle. Specifically, these are items in the holy place. Again, it's not the most holy place. The most holy place is where the Ark of the Covenant is. High priests go in there only once a year. This is the room outside of it. Holy place. So in the holy place, there's the lamp with seven lights. It's also known as the menorah. The people are to give oil to fuel this lamp so that it burns continually. Aaron, the high priest, is to make sure to refuel this lamp every single day. Verses 5 to 9 talks about another item in this holy place, the showbread. Verse 5 says that there are to be 12 loaves of bread. This should be a softball pitch to remind them of the 12 tribes of Israel. Twelve loaves of bread. There's 
Verse 8 says that the bread is changed out every Sabbath, and that it represents their covenant relationship with God. If you put all of 24, 1 and 9 together, what do you get? Well, remember that the tabernacle is like a new, restored, mini Garden of Eden. When we think back to when Eden is described, Genesis 1 and 2, how is the story told initially? It's told day by day, right? And how are the days differentiated? By the light that is renewed day by day. And where do all the days lead? Well, they lead to the Sabbath day of rest. So just as the priests attend to the light each day and then get to enjoy the bread on the Sabbath day, so God creates the world in each day and then enjoys his creation on the Sabbath day. So here in chapter 24, 1 to 9, is a picture of what their lives are now meant to be. Like the bread in the holy place, they are to daily bask in the light of the Lord and be renewed Sabbath by Sabbath. What a beautiful rhythm of life. Imagine a people who walked in this rhythm of life that reminds them of their relationship with the Lord. These special times and these regular times. Imagine the people who did this. It's no wonder God's crafting a way so that his people enjoy him. So that his people live close to him all the time. Now we think back to us, a calendar that includes National Talk Like a Pirate Day <laughs> is very different from this one here. We don't follow this calendar. And a natural question might be, should we follow this calendar? What should we do with this? Well, we can fit it within the story of the rest of the Bible and say that Jesus fulfills these regular and special times, these times that remind God's people of their relationship with him. So, for example, the book of Hebrews calls Jesus our Sabbath rest. In Jesus' perfect life and his death in our place, Jesus paid our debts. Jesus satisfied justice. Jesus fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law. And now we can rest. Rest from our labor of trying to measure up by doing good enough. So if the Israelites had reason to rest and rejoice over who God is and what he has done, us Christians have even more. So no, we don't have this calendar. The church calendar that many churches follow today that can be helpful, but it's not necessarily prescribed by Scripture. But in many ways, these feasts, like in Leviticus 23, they, they function like the rest of the law. They function to distinguish Israel from the nations around them. But in Jesus, God's people expand to include anyone who believes from any nation. And Jesus is mindful of this expansion even as he celebrates the feasts of Leviticus 23. I don't know if you spot this when you're reading your Gospels. A place like John 7 and 8, where is Jesus? Jesus is at the Feast of Booths. That's where he is. That's where Jesus says, I am the light of the world. The location, the setting where he says that's really important. It's like Jesus is saying, I'm the fulfillment of the pillar of fire that led people through the wilderness when they lived in tents and where does the Last Supper take place? It takes place at the Feast of Passover. It's like Jesus is saying, I am the last and final Passover lamb. My body will be broken. My blood will be shed. All for a new covenant that brings the forgiveness of sin for anybody who believes from any nation. So now we say God's people are set apart from the world when we celebrate the feast of our Savior. 
we pause life, and we gather together to partake of the Lord's Supper. In this meal, we rest and rejoice over who Christ is and what Christ has done, and we have a weekly rhythm in doing this. So friends, we might not have these feasts in Leviticus 23, but you know, Ephesians 5 verse 16 tells us to make the best use of our time. We still have a call in our lives to treat our time as holy, like it really comes from the Lord and it should be used for the Lord. And you know, we do that not just when we work really hard. You make the best use of our time when you don't endlessly work. That's making the best use of your time. You make the best use of your time when you develop a rhythm of life that keeps you close to the Lord. So my friend, what is the rhythm of your life that you have? Is it mindless? Is it just going through the motions? Is your rhythm of life consistently bringing you close to the Lord who saved you? To the Lord who made you his own? Or is it just kind of slapdash and haphazard? We make the best use of our time when the words, and as the word instructs us, by letting the word of Christ dwell in us richly, by drawing near to God as he draws near to us, by not neglecting to meet together, to pause, to rest, to remember, and to rejoice. I make the best use of the time. Treat it as holy. Now we're still in point number two, just to be clear, okay? But there's an awkward point in chapter 24, verses 10 to 23, before chapter 25. It feels like one of the pop rolls in Parma that are everywhere. <laughs> and it reminds me of my sermon notes. I don't know if anybody's seen my sermon notes before. They are much more of an art than a science. There have been many different incidents that have made me change how I organize my sermon notes. One very important change was including page numbers in my sermon notes because at one time I flipped to the next page and it wasn't the next page. So it made the sermon completely not make sense and threw out the flow of it entirely. Chapter 24, verses 10 to 13 feels like that. Feels like someone dropped the original copy of Leviticus on their way home from the copier and randomly stuck in this page. But let's try to see how it fits. And I, I'm going to persuade you that it does. Verses 10 to 23 of chapter 24 contains an incident of blasphemy. that honors God's precious name, and he is put to death. This leads God to give further instructions about judicial guidelines in verses 17 to 23. Close out the chapter. Again, keep this in context. God's putting a check on them. Don't overreach in punishment. The principle here is that the punishment should fit the crime. That's what eye for an eye means. In Matthew 5, Jesus warns about using eye for an eye to justify kind of a tit-for-tat approach to personal relationships. This instruction is for judges. In a sample ruling of eye for an eye, if you wanted to do more background on it, a sample ruling of this principle might be found in Exodus 21, verses 18 and 19. In those verses, there's a guy who beats up another guy, and we say breaking the perpetrator's arm is not going to help out the victim. You know what will help out the victim? If the perpetrator has to pay the victim to work for his cop for the work he has to miss. That's kind of what happens there. So why is this here? Verses 10 to 23 of chapter 24. Chapter 23, the first part of 24, there are a picture of a beautiful life. A rhythm of resting and rejoicing and fasting in the presence of God. It's the beginning of a restored Eden. 
This has happened in Leviticus before. In Leviticus 10, with Nadab and Abihu, every time we get close to a restoration of Eden, sin interrupts it. So here it's, it's a reminder chapter, at the end of chapter 24, if the people are to enjoy and live in God's presence, well, then they're going to need more than human priests. They're going to need more than an annual calendar. They're going to need a Savior who liberates them and gives them new hearts. And as would have it, that Savior would die because he was falsely accused of, you guessed it, blasphemy. So to live well before God's presence, God's people need to have holy leaders. They need to treat their time as holy. And the last section, they need to treat their land as holy. Here we're going into chapter 25. Chapter 25 picks up where chapter 24, verse 9, left off. Israel is to live all of life in God's presence, to treat their time as from the Lord and for the Lord. But God introduces a new facet of their lives, their land. They are to treat their land as holy. It really comes from the Lord, and it really should be used for the Lord. And God gives them instructions about how to do this. First, he says, they'll show that the land is from him, and that they use the land for him when they give their land a Sabbath rest. So, crazy enough, every seven years, God tells them, guys, don't work. Take a whole year off. Just let the land grow. That'd be nice. But it also sounds crazy. God, you're telling me to take a break. I'm supposed to feed my family. Every seven years. Now, keep in mind, this is a farming society, not an industrial society. But they're just to let the land grow. But, but God is so like God. He knows his people. Look at verses 21 and 20 and 21, chapter 25. He anticipates what his people are thinking. Verse 20. If you say, what shall we eat in the seventh year? We may not sow or gather in our crop. I will command my blessing on you in the sixth year, so that it will produce a crop sufficient for three years. So this, this Sabbath year was like the Sabbath day. Are they going to trust in God, or are they going to trust in their own efforts? Are they going to trust in God enough to take a break and to rest? So every, chapter 25 goes on, every seventh Sabbath year is like a super Sabbath year. So it happened every 50 years. It's called the year of Jubilee. Jubilee is the same word used for ram's horn. The ram's horn is a trumpet that announces the beginning of a new year. So every 50th year, any land that was sold off goes back to its original owner. We see instructions and exceptions for this in chapter 25, verses 25 to 34. Every 50th year, any person who sold themselves off to pay off a debt, they went free. Now, this is a healthy alternative to being thrown in prison for being in debt. Now, in the meantime, before that 50 years, yes, a relative could buy them out, but this statute prevents people from being resigned to this fate forever. The year of Jubilee. Now, I want to draw your attention just quickly to two verses that inform principles that undergird this year. Verse 23 and verse 38. They inform the people how they are to treat the land, and how they are to treat the people of the land. Verse 23 says, The land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine, for you are strangers and sojourners with me. It's like God tells his people, you are not to be real estate tycoons. 
You are not to be empire builders in the land. You are not to amass as much as you can get for yourself. The land doesn't belong to you. It belongs to me. And you know, this is still true of God's people. Our status as citizens of heaven should lead us to treat our possessions we enjoy on earth just like sojourners, just like we're passing through. So we should travel light. Hebrews 13, 14 says this, For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Verse 38, another principle that informs how they are to treat the people in the land. Verse 38 of chapter 25 says, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan to be your God. God's telling them, as I have dealt kindly with you, you should be kind to other people who live here. Seems a radical idea, doesn't it? But 1 John 4, 11 applies the same principle from God's love for us in Christ to how we treat other people. 1 John 4, 11 says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. How they treat their land. This year of Jubilee, every 50 years, it would be like a look backwards. Every 50 years, being set free from their labor would remind them about how God set them free from their bondage to Egypt. Every 50 years, getting their land back would remind them about how God gave them their land in the first place. But little did they know that every 50 years wasn't just a look backwards, it's a look forward. Jesus came proclaiming the words we read earlier from Isaiah 51. He came to set the captives free, free from their debt of sin. Jesus came for the ultimate year of Jubilee. And him having come one time, he still awaits for the last trumpet blast, for the last year of Jubilee, when Jesus will return to restore all things to what they should be, when Jesus will return to restore Eden and the fall. On April 18, 1998, Michael Jordan scored 44 points against the New York Knicks. I bet the kid in the stands who never saw Jordan play before, I bet he was ecstatic watching his performance. But you know, life is so much longer than just a basketball game, isn't it? I wonder, what if that same kid saw how Michael Jordan treated his teammates? What if that same kid saw what Michael Jordan did in his hotel room? What if that same kid saw how much stuff that Michael Jordan had amassed for himself? You see, God cares about more than just how we live and we're in the spotlight. God cares more than just about our quote-unquote religious time. All of life is in God's presence, and all of life should be treated as from Him and for Him. Now, if you're thinking that this is a terrifying and convicting prospect, because guess what? None of us has lived, have lived like this. Well, guess what, friend? There's good news. That in love, God sent a great high priest his only begotten Son. And Jesus lived all of life faithfully before God, in public and in private. And yet Jesus, on the center stage, was crucified for his people's faithlessness. So if you are terrified by living in the presence of God, well, consider this one. Yes, he is the one who is all-powerful, the creator, the defeater of death, but the God before whom we live all of life is also the one who is all 
the redeemer and the protector of his people. To live before this God should be joy. Living before this God, we join Paul in Romans 11, 36, which captures the heart of Leviticus 21 to 25, where we say, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. thank you for speaking to us through your word. We thank you, Lord, that when you saved us, you did not leave us, but stayed with us to dwell with us. And we thank you for your promise to shape us into those who are like your son. Lord, give us leaders among us who can help us to stay close to you. Lord, help us to lean into the rhythm of life that you've given to us. Life together and life on our own. A life that stays close to you lives near to your presence. Lord, help us to treat all of our lives, whether our time, whether what you've given to us, as holy, as being from you, as being for you. And God, of course, we do not rely upon ourselves, upon our own obedience. We find ourselves in Jesus. Upon that rock we stand. And we pray that whoever does not stand upon that rock today, Lord, that you would make yourself known to them. That they would find new life, Drink from the living waters, the only well that there is, and Christ Himself. So we come before you today and we say thank you. And we say we need your help. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.